Hey folks, Matt Robeson with two quick notes about today's show. Every week on WKXL, where this show is broadcast, we have a roundtable discussion show featuring perspectives from the left, right, and center called Balance of Power, and we usually feature that show in a different podcast, the Capital Close-Up podcast, which I hope people will subscribe to, and from time to time, we take episodes and put them in this podcast since it's aimed at more of a national audience and we like to bring those episodes to that audience. So that's what you're going to hear today. We also wanted to let you know that at certain moments you may hear a little bit of an audio distortion like a warble in Paul Hode's voice. That's because nowadays we get to record these shows over the internet but from time to time if there's really weird weather going on we can end up with some audio difficulties. So it should just be a few moments in the show where you'll hear that. We apologize, but we think the rest of the discussion is really, really good. So we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, which is broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. This is the show where we take a deep dive into some of the stories that aren't just in the day-to-day -day headlines and figure out what's going on behind them. And I'm joined, as always, by former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. Guys, I think we want to start with our recurring feature here this week in Trump, or should I say last week in Trump. As we record this on a Monday afternoon, we are fresh off of a week that can be charitably described as a no good, very bad, downright awful week for the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. Alicia, you brought to my attention the fact that he got some pretty rough headlines, especially coming out of the most recent edition of the January 6th investigation committee hearing where the New York Post of all outlets said Trump's silence on January 6th is damning. And the Wall Street Journal, normally friendly to Republicans and even to Donald Trump at most times, headlined the president who stood still on January 6th, even as the riot raged as the Capitol, Trump wouldn't tell his supporters to stop. It does seem like there is a continuing turn going on in the conservative commentariat. Alicia, you're part of the conservative commentariat. Do you think there's been an actual real change over the last week? I mean, there appears to be the Washington and the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal are two publications, particularly the Post, who has been very favorable, favorable in their coverage of uh, Donald Trump and critical in their coverage of Joe Biden. Uh, and this is a sharp contrast to their level of coverage and editorializing in the last four five, six years. So, you know, something happened. Was it Thursday's January 6th committee hearing that, you know, enough's enough, or was it just a culmination of the past several weeks? Let's not forget in June, the Washington Examiner, another conservative publication that had always been very favorable of Donald Trump, did something similar. They were kind of one of the first conservative publications to come out and say something like this. And it also could be that we're starting to hear talk about what's going to happen in 2024. Mm. And so this could be a way to say, oh, look, bro, not this time. Let's go. Let's move on. You know what I mean? And and try urge him potentially not to run. Um, but it could be all those factors in play. But it certainly is. Um, it's an interesting turn of events. And just to follow up with you before turning to Paul for a second, when the hearings launched, 
we did a little curtain raiser episode here and we talked about what would the standard for success be? Like, how could we evaluate whether or not these hearings have been worthwhile, a good enterprise for Congress to actually go through? Now, Republicans have tried their darndest to say that these are worthless, no one's paying attention, and they've tried to make the goal line here be, well, if you don't end up convicting Donald Trump of a crime, this is just a witch hunt, you know, I have to say, and I want to give you credit here, you have been a very strong voice in a different direction. You do find some value in this. You do very much put the blame squarely on Donald Trump for everything that happened in the run-up to January 6th. The big lie, the, the responsibility he has for twisting our politics, for bringing us to the brink of total meltdown of our American system, and on January 6th itself. So I want to ask you, now that we've reached this point, and maybe we are seeing a bit of a turn in your direction from other conservative commentary outlets, do you think that this enterprise of the January 6th hearings has added something valuable to American discourse? Have they been worth it? Um, Probably. I, I don't think the response that we're getting from people, including you know, the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal is they might be writing specifically about findings from this committee. I think what we're getting from the masses who are starting to say, can we look somewhere else for 2024 is just kind of a an ug. Hey, we're tired of it. I, I don't think it's one person's testimony or one thing that came out of the committee. I think it's just continuing to constantly hear the negativity and the, oh, did you hear about this piece and that piece? And there's just like ug factor of wanting to move forward in a direction. Paul, what's your take on this? Obviously, it doesn't take much of a push for you to go to the Trump is terrible camp. But are you, I mean, obviously, as a consumer of all of this from the Democratic side, the big D Democratic side, do you think something palpable has changed or, or is this kind of more of the same? Have we, have we crossed some kind of a line when it comes to sort of our collective evaluation of Donald Trump? Well, you know, according to some polling I saw recently, um, the committee's uh, work has been popular viewing, but not necessarily dispositive in terms of a change, a major change in the way people think. Um, So that's kind of interesting. Um, So to that extent, with the mass of the electorate, maybe um, it's still not the top issue for people when they're thinking about what's coming up in the midterms, etc. However, for the chattering classes uh, who are paying attention, um, the steady drumbeat of evidence um, including in the last hearing, Mitch McConnell laying the blame on on the president, Kevin McCarthy laying the blame on the president, um, more Republicans testifying, and this picture of the um, combination of an unhinged president and then a purposefully neglectful president uh, who 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 purposefully stood by while people were being hurt at the Capitol uh, may simply be too much for those who are paying attention. I kind of agree with Alicia uh, on something. Now I know that's exceedingly rare, but it happens occasionally. And in this case, I think, first of all, 
um, even aside from the polling for people and even aside from the Republican parade, uh, the chattering classes are paying attention in a certain way to what Alicia called the UG factor, which is that these hearings are like political COVID. They keep going on and on and on, and you can't escape the effects. Just when you think it's safe, there's comes something else, a new variant. And all these political hearings are like a new variant for the Republicans. We've got now we're deep into variant number eight um, uh, for Donald Trump. And um, whatever Whatever the Republicans can stomach, it just may be that the establishment Republicans, to the extent that the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and some of the right wing media are establishment Republicans, they've they've had enough. They've they've had they've had enough. Well, I, I think you both have it right that essentially these hearings have served as a political accelerant within the Republican Party for a trend that was already beginning. And if you look at the polling on it that you alluded to, Paul, you can see the antecedents of this going back to last year, a very slow separation between the Republican base and Donald Trump. You know, going back to 2016, there was polling that showed that 62% of Republicans literally could not think of something that Donald Trump could do that would cause him to lose their support. He could have done what he said he could have done, walked down Fifth Avenue and shot someone and not lost a single vote. We are beginning to see a separation occur there. And to the extent that you now have media outlets that are followed and read and listened to in Republican circles that are saying what the candidates themselves cannot, because make no mistake, you still can't come out in Republican politics, it's like coming out of the closet. You can't come out as anti-Trump these days and survive. It, 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 that's still not smart political positioning. It's not survivable political positioning. But now you're getting headlines like these from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and you know even some questioning stuff on Fox that gives a little bit of political ammunition and permission to Republican leaders to say, we love you, Donald. Thank you for your service. You're the best. We appreciate everything you do. Oh, look, Ron DeSantis time. And you're beginning to see commentators <laughs> say that kind of thing too. Andrew Sullivan, the noted conservative uh, analyst, uh, came out with a column last week that basically said just that. It's like, hey, isn't Ron DeSantis awesome? And that's kind of the page that you do see beginning to get turned within Republican cir circles, this idea that, you know what, maybe it's just time for a change. It's just time for a new generation of leaders. And on that note, Alicia, you brought to our attention a headline from the AP, a story that you thought was really interesting on that note. Why did it catch your attention? What did you have in mind? Well, it you know, it's talking about needing new, maybe younger, fresher leadership um, in our big elected positions in Washington and in our states. And I think it's true. Look, I I've been saying for a while, these guys are just too old. And then if you look at the age of our Senate and the age of our Congress, and it's, we need some fresh blood in there. We need some new ideas in there. We need some new energy in there and in all of these offices. And, um, you know, this piece kind of took a look at that and candidates running in various districts who are younger, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. And it, it makes sense to me at some point, you know, things aren't going right. You don't keep going down the same road. You turn. And the turn here could be, 
let's get some new ideas, some new energy, a new perspective, um, not beholden to the old ways or the old parties or your old friends, um, and more representative of who the people and the populaces are that they're representing. Paul, I don't want to put you in a rough position here, but you have attained a certain age. It's north of 70. And so I feel like I'm setting you up to throw your fellow septuagenarians and septuagenarians plus under the bus. I don't want to do that. But what's your stand on this idea that, you know, we just we just need a wholesale a wholesale tournament. Whenever you whenever you put in a whole new lineup, you call it a wholesale, like in basketball or football. Just just wholesale your whole lineup. Do both parties need a wholesale here? Well, I I think I might adopt the Elizabeth Holtzman um, uh, approach, which is eighty must be the new forty, because <laughs> she's running for Congress in New York, and uh, she last served forty years ago. She took a a forty year break. And now she's uh, going again. And as she said, you know, it's not how old you are. It's how old you think or something like that. Yeah. So maybe I'm being a little contrary in here, but I do think it's worth asking what problem we're trying to solve here when we say, hey, it's time for a wholesale. It's time to just turn the page to a new generation of political leadership. Because to me, the biggest threat we face in the United States of America in 2022 is our own political dysfunction. Now, I know that sounds weird when we're facing the potential end of the world due to global warming. But if you really think about it, it's because not just that democracy itself might end. We might actually have another civil war. I'm not kidding. We might have another civil war. Do the thought experiment. If Donald Trump wins, especially via some Trumpian skullduggery in 2024, is it going to end in a nonviolent fashion? Just ask yourself that question. So yes, we do face a really frightening prospect of what could happen in two years. But I'm not just referring to that because those kinds of global challenges we face, like global warming and the seriously limited opportunity, economic opportunity for young people in this country and the massive debts we face, $32 trillion in debt, insolvency to the tune of 80 something trillion dollars in the Medicare trust fund. We did a whole show about this. It's, it's scary stuff, people. All of those problems only get solved at the federal level and only by a federal government that is functioning. And our, we cannot take on these massive challenges unless we have a functioning political system. And I have to wonder just a little bit, just going back a little bit it, to, to listeners old enough to remember the 1996 presidential campaign, Bob Dole was mocked when he said in his convention, convention speech that he wanted to be a bridge to America's past. Well, the Bill Clinton campaign jumped all over that. And they said, well, we want to be a bridge to the future. Nana, nana, foo, foo on you. But that's exactly what Joe Biden was trying to sell in 2020, wasn't it? He was trying to say that he could be a bridge to a different American politics of the past. And I wonder, seriously, this is just, it's an open question. If we were to turn the page to leaders who were formed in the mold of today's far more partisan and ugly political warfare, if that would actually be helping us. I don't think that Biden has been successful in bringing us back to that politics of the past. But if we had a new generation of political leaders ascendant who have been part of this trenched partisan warfare that we are experiencing right now, will we be actually be better off? I'm not so sure. 
Look, oh. the challenge is, let me just say, the challenge is that we're a nation that looks forward. We're a nation that's always talking about the future. And uh, wisdom be damned, um, experience, who needs it? Uh, it's easy to throw out the baby with the bathwater in terms of age. This is not necessarily a defense of people who are doddering and too old to think straight. Uh, but when it comes to government, really, it's not that heavy a lift. Uh, and sometimes wisdom counts. On the other hand, having the perspective and experience of young people is also really, really important. So I well, I think a few things. Number one, to Paul's last point, uh, I think wisdom and experience matters. I actually wish we'd change a constitution for Congress from 25 to 35. I think people who have business or real life experience um, should be considered into these positions. Um, you know, if you've never paid taxes or had to come up with childcare or anything in that realm, you don't know what you need to do to help those who do. And that goes to answer a question you posed, Matt, which was, what problem are we trying to solve? The problem we're trying to solve is that we have officially gotten to a point where our leaders in Washington no longer represent or reflect the masses, the populace itself. Um, people who have been in Washington for 40 years and regurgitate the same ideas over and over and over again, and they're so partisan. And yes, some people are so partisan. Most of us are not. And, you know, that's why they get stuck in Washington and the far left is like, the only thing you people care about is saving the planet, which I care about saving the planet. I'm, I'm an environmentalist Republican, but the far pro planet is, is I'm, I'm a pro out. planet. I'm pro. I, I would like to go on record saying I'm pro planet and, and the far right's coming up with some far right stuff. Like, Oh, maybe we should, you know, I don't know what they're doing, overturning gay marriage or something, which while I'm opposed to my point is this isn't what we're focusing on anymore. They are so out of touch like almost every single one of them in Washington, D.C. are so incredibly out of touch with the masses. Most of them have been there too long. Most of them are stuck in there. They've got their ways. They've got their ideas. Every few years, they vote for this increase to that increase to this increase. Oh, I'm going to cut taxes. Oh, I'm going to raise taxes. And we need something new and new ideas because America is not in a great place right now. We're not in a great place. We're not in a great place economically. We're not in a great place financially. And we're not in a great place as a society culturally. And so... I just think doing what we've done for the last hundred years, let's try something new. Let's get some fresh blood in there. But yes, no, to Paul's point, because I know there are like 24 year olds running for Congress right now. And I'm like, just like I say, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are too old. I say they're too young. We need that stuff in the middle. The people who have experienced, but they don't fall asleep in the chamber. That's all. I'm can, I, can I just <laughs> come in here to say that I'm in fervent agreement with you. See, here's some bipartisan agreement that the American Look, this is how you do it, guys. This, this is, is how you do it. it. We strongly agree on two points. One is that the the age bracket that should be politically ascendant right now is people in their 40s. I mean, Alicia, do we agree on this? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, we do. It's not self-interested <laughs> at all. Don't think that. The other thing that I hear you saying is that politicians and diapers should be changed regularly and for the same reason. And I think it goes to the point that it's not necessarily the case that age is an unalloyed detriment or asset, right? It's, you can, you can have new ideas. You can push the envelope. I mean, look, Bernie Sanders, as much as I disagree with where he is politically, I am not a socialist folks. As much as I disagree with a lot of his political philosophy, I have to credit Bernie him. Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. 
He is oh, a gosh. democratic socialist. There is a difference. There is a difference. Well, I can't tell what it is. I'll tell you that much. Well, my piece. But going. I will say this. I will say this. Keep going. I survived with him because he was pushing the envelope in terms of some some fresh thinking. Well, with some old thinking, let's be clear. But he was changing the political conversation. You can do that and be old in calendar years. You can also be young and be wise. But if you really want the sweet spot, I think what Alicia Preston is saying is look to leaders in their 40s. You would say Ron DeSantis. I'd probably say Pete Buttigieg. We'll have to leave that disagreement there. <laughs> Let's talk about a race, a race for the U.S. Senate that is prominent in New Hampshire, where we're on radio, and prominent across America because it is one of the most closely watched races this cycle in 2022. It's the race for the seat in the U.S. Senate currently occupied by U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan. Full disclosure, I really like Maggie Hassan. She and I go back a long ways, go back a long ways with Paul there too. So I'm going to try to be very objective about this, but I personally like Maggie Hassan. That being said, she has been considered a political goner for the better part of a year. Why? Because it's a bad, rough cycle for Democrats, and she occupies a notoriously swingy swing seat. It was a seat that you once ran for, Paul Hodes, and you experienced the very worst of how the swing can swing against you when you're in a rough cycle for Democrats. For people who don't know what I'm talking about, just Google the 2010 cycle. You will see exactly what I mean. So that's the setup. Maggie Hassan has been considered a rough go for her at, at best, the whole cycle. But now we're beginning to see a number of articles emerge that are saying, wait a second, maybe she's actually got a pretty good shot here. There was one in Axios and then an in-depth analysis by Nate Silver in 538. Paul, that 538 article particularly caught your attention. What stood out to you? What should our national listeners understand about this race and about Maggie Hassan's position that maybe they didn't know from a 30,000 foot level. Well, uh, you're right. You, thanks, thanks for all those great memories about my disaster <laughs> in 2010. Um, I don't think Maggie is quite facing uh, the same kind of environment that I faced in 2010, number one. Number two, things are not quite as bad for Democrats uh, as bad as they may be, uh, as they were in 2010. Number three, the people who run against her are a veritable clown show on the wrong side of issues for New Hampshire. And number four, New Hampshire is a genuinely swingy swing state. So she's got a she's got a really good shot. Um, she hasn't been caught with a, a dead girl or a live boy in her in her car. So um, you know she's she's probably okay. Um, and I just want to cut in here. And speaking of headwinds, we are recording this during a thunderstorm. And you may have just heard a little bit of audio distortion there on former Congressman Hodes. Sorry, folks, we are doing our best with what nature deals us. Democrats do their best with rough political headwinds. We do our best with rough actual headwinds. Um, Alicia, you actually served as the moderator for a debate among those Republican U.S. Senate primary contenders. And one of the points that both the Axios and 538 article made is that 
New Hampshire has a very late primary. It happens in September. And one of the features of that late primary is that it leaves relatively little time for the primary winner to collect her or himself and make the charge for November. But you have a better finger on the pulse of what's going on on the Republican side than anyone. What did you make of those articles, those analyses? Where do you think the race stands? And do you think that it's a problem that that there isn't a clear front runner that's necessarily emerged on the Republican side yet. I think that race really is a toss up. And I think it's in part dependent upon who the Republican nominee is. I mean, to your point, our primary is September 13th. The general election is November 8th. That is less than two months. That is like six to seven weeks to get your name out. And right now on the Republican side, they have to focus on beating each other. Um, there are five candidates. I think it'll come down to either Chuck Morse, he's a Senate president in New Hampshire, or Kevin Smith, uh, who is also another excellent candidate. I, and they're, they both got good fundraising prowess. And I think either one of them can give Maggie Hassan a run for her money. But again, they're trying to get their name out among the Republican electorate right now, of which it is one third of the state. One third of the voters is who they're targeting right now. And then they're going to have six to seven weeks to target 67% of the voters, while as we speak, Senator Hassan is on air with ads, and strategically, it's smart. I don't buy it knowing her voting record, but it's smart. She's claiming to be against the current administration on certain things. She's claiming to be the Democrat who's standing up to her own party. She's claiming she works with Republicans and things of that nature. That's a good message for the third of the state that are independents and would like to see that. And, you know, I think if we had a primary that was a month earlier and Chuck or Kevin won that primary, and I, again, I think it'll be one of them, um, they'd have a very good chance at advancing on Senator Hassan. As it stands, I think it's a toss up and it shouldn't be. It really is a strategic timing issue based on how we do it in New Hampshire. One of the things that stood out to me from that 538 analysis, and it was interesting. I mean, you know, I commend it to people. If you want to Google it, check it out. Nate Silver obviously brings a tremendous amount of analytical and statistical prowess to, to questions like this. And he just points out, I, I think the, the major thing is that New Hampshire is very swingy. When you see a trend, a change in polling that goes across the country, that change tends to be magnified in what the polling uh, shows in New Hampshire. And that's because New Hampshire does have less of the predictable super ultra base voters for each party that you see in other states. You, you don't have as many cultural conservative evangelical Christians for the Republican party. And you don't have as many black voters for the Democratic Party. And those are the kinds of constituencies that tend to perform very reliably and show up, particularly in those midterm elections. And look, Paul, not to uh, make you throw up in your mouth a little bit about the 2010 experience, but that's exactly what went down in 2010 for you, is that it was a bad cycle for Democrats. It was a rough political environment. And that roughness got magnified and you saw that swing middle swing hard to the Republican Party. Now, in this case, what I do find interesting is that the generic ballot, which is the question that pollsters ask, which says no names attached, which party are you more likely to vote for in November? That generic ballot hasn't shown a particularly large gap all this year. And People talk about presidential approval rating as kind of an indicator of where the party that holds the White House stands. 
But it turns out that historically, it's not a great predictor of midterm performance. Generic ballot is actually a much better predictor of how the parties are going to do relatively in the midterms. And by the way, over the last six weeks or so, the polling that's come out across the country has shown a recovery on the generic ballot. It's now in recent polls, about even for the two parties. Now, because of gerrymandering and because of sorting and all kinds of other effects, Democrats actually need to be ahead on the generic ballot to break even in actual voting. It's crazy. It's weird. It just, it is. It's a thing. So this doesn't necessarily mean that Democrats have an advantage or that they're actually going to perform evenly. It just means that right now the trend lines have been in Democrats' direction, and you can expect that that would benefit someone like Maggie Hassan in this ultra-swingy environment in New Hampshire. So we will be sure to check back in on this race because obviously the eyes of the nation are on it. But let's move on to another political story that came up last week that Alicia, you brought to my attention. You thought it was particularly interesting, not because you want to litigate the Hunter Biden story and all of its details and all of its mess per se, but because you thought an analysis of kind of the winding, complicated course of Hunter Biden's political standing kind of reflects interestingly on the way the media has treated that story. What did you think about that story? Why did you want to bring it to everyone's attention? Well, because you know, the media did abdicate their duty for so long. Um, and now they're not. Now they're covering it. But now they're covering it because the Department of Justice is actually looking into Hunter Biden. And I think, you know, it's almost like the boy who cried wolf and the media bit. You know, Donald Trump and his allies were, you know, kept spewing things about Biden. But he, they also spew other things that weren't true. And so the media bit on the Well, if he's lying about this, he's lying about that. And they let it go. And now we're seeing a change where they're starting to cover it because it is real news, but they're also disenfranchised with the Biden administration. So I just I think what it did is it once again reinforces we've got a media in this country who, you know, they need as much of a reset as the walls of Congress inside the walls of Congress, I think, to understand that you know, the duties are to cover things. Look, this is difficult. This is the son of a sitting president of the United States. I can't imagine being Merrick Garland right now trying to figure out what to do ahead of the elections. And the media have to take that into account too. To what extent do you cover this understanding there'll be political ramifications for you reporting the news? And it can be a difficult balance, but it's one that has to be made. Paul, one of the points that the article that Alicia brought to our attention, and it was an analysis by Jonathan Turley in The Hill, the Capitol Hill newspaper, The Hill. One of the points that uh, Jonathan Turley made is that the reason in part that the Hunter Biden story was, for lack of a better word, suppressed in the run-up to the 2020 election, that it wasn't covered and that it wasn't prosecuted at the time, is because of understandable prosecutorial discretion exercised on the part of law enforcement and the guidelines that they should not do anything that would tend to interfere in an upcoming election. And also the judgment by the news media that this story had enough wackiness, had enough um, questions about where it came from. Was it a plant? Was it Russian disinformation? Was it a Rudy Giuliani cookup job that it would be irresponsible to report on it right before this highly consequential presidential election and throw the results of that election into question. Plenty of time to report on it after the fact when they have sorted out the details, especially because 
there, at no time was there an implication that Joe Biden had done anything corrupt. It was more a question of Hunter Biden's behavior. Now, as always, you are a former assistant attorney general, a former prosecutor. You've prosecuted white collar crimes. You've prosecuted financial crimes. You've prosecuted the kinds of crimes that Hunter Biden is now alleged to have committed. What do you make of that decision on the part of prosecutors and the news media now that we've had about two years of retrospect on it? Do you still think it was the right decision? Or do you think, as Alicia says, that you know, we've got a real problem with the, ma- the way the media is treating this story and stories like it. Uh, prosecutors, especially at the federal level and the DOJ are always or should always be concerned about appearing too political uh, in, their, um, in their prosecutorial decisions. They don't want to get involved in politics. They want to make pure prosecutorial decisions. And it may very well be that because it may simply have been that they didn't have enough evidence um, to move forward with uh, the, either uh, their investigation at the time or uh, a decision about uh, prosecuting. And now maybe there's evidence, maybe this is a put up, maybe it's a witch hunt, maybe it's a snore. We don't know at this point. Um, there are all kinds of people with all kinds of theories about what's going on. Um, but um, and I don't want to get involved in both sidesism, but you also saw um, the DOJ kind of taking a similar hands-off approach on some stories about Trump uh, and uh, his family uh, way back when uh, he was a candidate. So I think in general, prosecutors want to stay, keep out of the politics, which will taint uh, a prosecution or an investigation. You know, for my part, I will focus. I, I I don't have the same perspective that you have on the prosecutorial side of this. And that was most of what the Jonathan Turley analysis was about, less about the media side. I will say that it's awfully easy to forget now with a two-year gap. I mean, and this was such a complicated and weird story at the time. It's easy to forget just how complicated and weird it was. But back in October 2020, what we were talking about was the revelation that there had been a laptop that was alleged to have been dropped off in a Delaware repair shop with owned by a blind proprietor who thought that it belonged to Hunter Biden and that had contents, some of which appeared to be genuine, some of which we had no idea if they were genuine or not, or if they represented, since we had no idea where this laptop had come from or whose hands it had fallen into in the interim, could this be Russian disinformation? Could it be something that Rudy Giuliani had cooked up because he was in fact tied to this coming to light? The reporting on this that was done, the New York Post, their news division wouldn't touch it. The reporter, they made a newsroom decision that there was not enough solid evidence about what was going on here to report it out of the news division. So they shunted it over to the opinion section to bring this up. That's the kind of lack of confidence they had in this story. All of that understood. I don't think that the media's decision to go very, very light on this story at the time was the wrong decision. We know for a fact that there were scads of of media disinformation planted 
by Russia in the 2016 cycle, and that they were making every effort to do so again in 2020. Now, we have since learned some things in the two-year gap since this story emerged. We've learned that probably a lot of the information that's on that laptop is genuine. It, it does represent files that belong to Hunter Biden, that, that originated with Hunter Biden. The laptop itself, the physical piece of, of hardware, may actually have been Hunter Biden's. But forensic analysts who have looked at all of this information still can't verify where a large percentage of it came from. And, you know, look, in intelligence circles, if you're captured and you're under interrogation, the strategy that you are taught to employ is to give a mix of real information and false information, because it's awfully hard to tease apart what's true and what's not. And that could very well be the case here. So look, I don't know. I literally don't know. I continue to think that the media's treatment of this has been more or less appropriate and that we really need to rely on prosecutors to do their job. And if he's committed crimes, prosecute him. Put him, put him in front of a jury, have them render a verdict, let justice be done. You know what could have closed that two-year gap of media coverage or lack thereof? Something we used to know in this country as investigative journalism. They could have looked into it. They could have investigated it. They could. The New York Times does has reporters on things for two years before necessarily reporting on it, investigating it. That's what, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, they're pretty famous because they did investigative journalism, the really hard stuff to find stuff they didn't want to find, but needed to be found for the good of the American people. Now, this isn't about the good of the American people because it's Hunter Biden, not his father. And to my knowledge, to your point, I don't think Biden himself is implicated in any way as having done anything wrong in association with his son's business activities. But it should have been looked at and it should have been looked at by an unbiased media, but they didn't want to. They turned their head. And what's the craziest part of the story, because you're right, it's a really weird story, is what we know now is most of what was said is true. And You know what? You know, Let me ask you this. Would we even be talking about this if his second name wasn't Biden? Would, would this even be a story if it wasn't Okay, no, so he wouldn't so, have access so to commit the, the relationship. Crime. The, the Republicans, <laughs> the Repub, the no, no, the Republicans wanted to tag the president with this. That's what's been going on. The, if your if adult the son didn't have have enough to even think about it, then they didn't have enough. I, I, will I believe say, the adult children of a sitting president of the United States of America with potential criminal activity financial crimes, abuse of using his father's position in order to gain financially from foreign governments. Yeah, that's pretty pertinent. And I'm willing to bet, Paul, if Don Trump, Donald Trump Jr. were doing those kind of things, you too would find it nationally of interest. Well, he is doing those kinds of things. And we do find it of interest. I will just <laughs> footnote here that since you- It is, a, it is you, of interest. It's an entire crime family. Yes. I find that of interest. But I will say that since you invoked Watergate and the Washington Post, they have done a, a fair amount of investigative journalism after the fact. Now, again, the controversy here, I think, I think, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, is was the story handled appropriately at the time? And I've made my case that I think it was. I think given the questions about where all this came from, the fact that Rudy Giuliani was so thirsty to make this a thing as an obvious deflection, I, I think that that in itself shows that, yeah, this, this was, a, but, but there has been subsequent investigation here. And you know what the Post has found is they have been able to verify some of the information. 
a significant portion of it, a significant portion of it, they have not been able to verify that it's that it's real. And now there are warnings from the, the very guy. There's, there's a good story on this from April 12th, uh, 2022, uh, from Philip Bump uh, with, the, with the Washington Post. And the title is, now warning about Hunter Biden laptop disinformation, the guy who leaked it. So the guy who was a link in the chain between Giuliani and the New York Post is saying, yeah, I don't actually feel confident about what was going on here. The point is, I, I hear your I hear your case that there should have been more investigative journalism. It should have happened faster after the election. But I think this is a binary situation. I think it was handled appropriately before the investigation. And at most, the most you could say is that immediately after the election, the national media was too slow to put their full force of investigation onto it. Maybe they were. But ultimately, I don't think the media has been far off on this. The one last point I want to make on this, and this is probably going to shock everybody, is it looks like it's pretend if, if anything comes of it from a prosecutorial standpoint, it looks like they're looking at federal charges um, and they're all financial crimes. And if I'm Joe Biden and my son gets convicted of federal crimes that are of the nature of finances, not like murdering children or something, I'd pardon the guy. <laughs> And I would not hold it against Joe Biden if he ends up pardoning his own son because nepotism. And I think that's fair. And I don't care about Hunter Biden and I don't care about any of it. But I just want to go on record that I'm all for President Biden. I would not criticize him if he pardons his own son. That's a very interesting point. And by the way, this goes back to your <laughs> fascinating theory from a few weeks ago that what we should do to resolve the legal status of Donald Trump is for him to be indicted and for Joe Biden to immediately pardon him. Very yes. interesting idea, Elizabeth Preston. I commend that to people. Go find it. It was either in Beyond Politics or Capital Close-Up. We usually appear in the Capital Close-Up podcast feed. From time to time, we pop this one into Beyond Politics just to bring it to all of our national listeners. Let's close out on a fun story. I, you know, look, Paul, I know you wanted to bring up monkeypox. It's such a stone-cold bummer. And it's still going to be with us in a week. Let's talk about that one next week. I want to talk about artificial intelligence. This is another one, Alicia, that you brought up for us to discuss just real quick here at the end. There was a story that uh, emerged over the weekend that Google has gone ahead and fired Blake Lemoyne, the engineer who said that its artificial intelligence system, and this is, it's pronounced Lambda, it's big L, little a, MDA, which is their um, their chat bot, essentially, the, the engineer who said that it was sentient, that it was self-aware, an intelligent organism, he's been fired. Um, Paul, have the robots finally come to turn us all into batteries and make us wish for Keanu Reeves to save us? Like, what do you make of all this? I do not know what to make of these robotic stories. They might be true, they might not. I mean, look, basically uh, the future is now, folks, and we're getting there. Uh, we can program enough brain into a robot to certainly uh, equal the brain power of, oh, I don't know, Ivanka Trump. So, so it's certainly possible, um, and who knows? I don't put it past Google to be investigating what how to make a sentient robot and they fire the guy because they don't want the story to come out so i'm i'm looking forward to the whistleblower suit uh alicia the 
British mathematician and uh, engineer, sort of the father of computer science, Alan Turing, famously came up with what was later called the Turing test to see if people could distinguish between a computer making responses on the other end of a wall and a human being. Prove to us that you're human. Arf. I've stumped, you know, actually, I have to say that was brilliant. <laughs> Imitating a dog is something that would probably not occur to an artificial dog. You've done it. I, you've you. passed a Turing test. I, I don't think that you're just, you're just, right. you're not like Max Headroom. Uh, the only, the only, the only thing I, here's the only thing I want to say. When Google fired Blake Lemoyne, his robot felt really bad about it. It is suspicious. I mean, look, they had an HR reason, one of these like modern HR things. It's like, well, you didn't follow company policies. You talked to the media about our weird um, prescient robot that's going to blow us all up. Um, but it is a little, it's like me thinks the company doth protest too much. It's like, no, no, we do not have a super intelligent artificial intelligence sitting here. Mind your own business. It's fine. Skynet is not self-aware. Okay. Judgment day is not here. The robots are not here to kill us. Everything will be well. Um, on that happy note, hopefully, hopefully we'll be back on the show next week. If the machines haven't come to finish us off and if they have, well, um, I'll enjoy the apocalypse. With you all. See you next week. Bye.